Genesis. <laughs> Explaining it to you is the work of the Lord. And I pray that the Holy Spirit indwells each of you to hear his words clearly. So let me ask you a question. Are there any runners in here? Runners? Runners. One, two, three. Oh, more than the a.m. There were two and a half this morning. So, so I will tell you, um, I am not a runner. Um, if I run, I'm running from running, to be honest. Um, I love to run sprints. I love to run in short bursts, in straight lines, maybe a curve or two. And there was a time um, when Joel and I, my husband and I, and thought we might be runners, and he actually stayed one, but we ran a half marathon. And really, this, yeah, and I never have to do it again. So <laughs> this half marathon, it really, I realized it just frustrated me. Because as you're running, you're going along and you see that you have to go up here and go around the lake, but there are people right next to you going that way. And all you would really have to do is just do a little turn <laughs> and you could miss the whole lake completely. And then you would be well on your way. And or other, there was another time that I was running and I looked over and there was the finish line, like right there. And I had three more miles to go. It did not make sense to me. And I'm not one of those who does something just to enjoy it. If I'm doing something, I'm going to compete and beat you at it. And so to like do something and not be good at it and for it to take forever and to see all of these people doing better than me was really frustrating because engaging in something for just that length of time that I didn't feel like had a lot of purpose, I really didn't understand it. And this is why I am a linear directional thinker. I don't think in circles. It doesn't make sense to me. I like to go in one direction. I would love it if my Christian life would look that way. <laughs> but as we know, it does not, does it? As we know, there are times when we are running and we're like, I, I could just make a little turn and go. And God's like, no, you got to go around the lake. <laughs> because the Christian life is not a sprint. Unfortunately, it is a marathon. It is a journey. It is something that we have to commit to, and we will not just be finished immediately. And this is the journey of sanctification. And for me, it feels like I, I would like to just go in this straight direction, but I will go like two steps forward and a thousand steps back. Or then maybe I will go 500 steps forward and only three steps back, but it feels like it is always doing something like that, that I make a right turn, I do a little spiral, and then come back because what happens is there are good things, even great things in my life that I celebrate, but then I begin to depend more and more on those things, spending more time with those things than I am with the Lord, and then I have made them more important than my God, and I have put them on the throne in front of him. It seems like on the hierarchy of needs, something that always gets bumped up above holiness is approval of man. <laughs> and I always have to dismantle that. It is always this very intentional choice I have to make. But these things distract us from the face of God. They, they, they take us on another journey. They send us around the lake when really we need to just focus and look straight ahead at the face of our Savior. And there are things that that we take and we will put on the throne of our lives in the place where God belongs. And we think that it's just a little thing. It doesn't matter. I can just do this thing. But what have we learned? That any time we put something in the place of God, big or small, the ramifications will always be big. 
I mean, think about Jacob. He was just thinking, well, I'm, I'm supposed to go to Bethel, but we'll just stop in this other little town. We'll stop in Shechem and it'll be fine. We're just, we're going to, a, we're going in the direction God said, but we're just going to hang out here for a little bit. And that was the place that there was a greedy prince and there was evil that happened and ultimately fatal consequences. Because here's what we learn. Any time we go to something created to fulfill only what the uncreated can do for us, we make that an idol. We make that a lowercase g God. And those idols are the ones that put that we put in place of God and that throw us off um, the path of looking into the face of God. They change our journey of sanctification and keep us from growing into God's likeness. And so today we are going to look at this passage and we are going to see that God calls us and he loves us as we are, yet he will never stop working to make us more like him. He loves us, he calls us as we are, but he is faithful and diligent and always working to make us look like him. And so we're going to be in chapter 34. We're going to look at some of the idols of the people. And then we will look at Jacob's call from God to put Jacob back on the path of growing in God's likeness. Because we will see that God calls us and loves us as we are. But he never stops working to make us more like him. So you have a handout in your table, on your tables. It is a list of characters in this story. And it's asking, what are the idols? And so as we go through the characters in this story, I want you to be thinking, what, what is Hamor putting on the throne in place of God? What is Shechem putting on the throne in place of God? And look at that bottom row. What does that bottom row say? You think we have idols? I mean, I don't. That's why I don't have a handout up here. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, I already filled out mine when I wrote this, and it was brutal. So if we, as we are going along, I want you to have that space, that if God brings something to your mind that you need to be reminded that this is an idol you need to dismantle, then write that down. Writing it down does not mean this is my idol. Perhaps writing this down just means, you know what, this is something I'm concerned about or that the Lord has put on my heart, and I need to bring it before him. So we're not etching anything in stone, but we are committing to bring some things before the Lord in this, okay? So we are in Genesis 34. We find Jacob in Shechem, where he basically stopped short on his way to Bethel, the place where God had initially called him to go. So already, already, Jacob is modeling to his family um, that it's okay to operate in his own understanding, to put himself on the throne. And by stopping short of um, the place they were supposed to go, and by building his tent so closely to this Canaanite city, the people who they were not supposed to marry and um, assimilate with, Jacob has already failed to model to his family what God has called them to do, and that's to be set apart as God's chosen people. So that's already happening before the story even starts. Genesis 34, starting in verse 1. 
Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. Genesis has been a little hard on women, hasn't it? This is not the heart of the Lord. This is not something he approves of. And I want you to hear something really important. Though we are talking about sanctification tonight and about God doing whatever it takes and working in us to make us more like him, let me be very clear in saying God will not use evil to accomplish his purpose. And what happened to Dinah is one thing only, and that is evil. And God will not go outside of his character. He is a good God, and evil is not good. And he is a good God who will not cause evil. Now, it is the result of living in a fallen and broken world, that fallen and broken world that happened in Genesis 3. It is a result of that, and evil does happen in this world. But God won't cause it to bring about his purpose. What he will do is he will redeem it. He will restore it, and he will reconcile us in a way that only he can and in ways that we could never fathom. But hear this. What happened to Dinah is abhorrent. It is not endorsed by God. It is not approved by God. And as a matter of fact, we will see God's heart of justice throughout the rest of Scripture. And we will even see Jacob condemned for his inactivity. Do y'all, y'all got that? Okay, off the soapbox. This is important, y'all need to hear that. Now, as, as for Dinah, she was probably around 15 years of age. Um, scholars believe that she would have been that age, and girls of that age were not normally allowed to roam around to go out by themselves. They were almost always under protection, um, especially in an unknown city. But if you've ever known teenage girls, they want to see and be seen, see the culture, see what's going on. This is a new place. I want to check it out. And she wanted to see what was going on. Here's the thing, is that she should have been chaperoned, correct? She goes in without this supervision. And so this raises the question, Jacob played favorites with Leah and Rachel. So would this have happened if this would have been one of Rachel's daughters? It's Jacob's responsibility to see that Dinah would have been chaperoned. Yet what is the consistent response we see from Jacob through all of this? Passive distant, inactive, especially when it comes to Leah's children. And we see that worked out here. And what I want you to do is as we continue in this study to watch the difference between Leah's children and Rachel's children and the tension that continues to exist over and over and over, even into the 12 tribes. We're going to watch for that. All right, Genesis 34, verse 4. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what happened. Y'all see the difference? They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Let me ask you, how did you feel about Jacob when you read this? Angry. Thanks for the growl. Frustrated. 
right? A little outraged. What did we want Jacob to do? We wanted him to advocate for his daughter, to stand up for justice. I know the first thing I wanted him to do, but the second thing I wanted him to do was to go to the Lord and to seek justice from the Lord for his daughter, to advocate for the pain and the harm that had been done to her. You think maybe we're seeing one of Jacob's idols? Maybe his idol was peace, that he just didn't want to get into anybody's business. Safety, fear, passivity, we could probably make a list. On your list, there's, I want y'all to know there's not a right answer and a wrong answer. This is the last hint I'm going to give you. The rest are just for you to observe. But we see these things that they are choosing to put in front of the Lord. And so we can't help but wonder, What would a good God desire for Dinah? What would he have desired? What would you have desired if it was you? Let's look at verse 8. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Do you notice what town they are in? Shechem. And what is the name of the king's son? Red flag here. We got a spoiled prince going on. And what happens when he gets in trouble? Dad comes to rescue him. Dad brings wealth and power and influence to give this son whatever he wants because that is exactly what he is used to. And dad is rescuing him. And then Shechem decides to sweeten up the deal. But this is actually, or it actually should be, a non-starter. Because if you'll remember, God had told the Israelites not to intermarry with the Canaanites. And so this should not even be an option for them. And so we see that that little small morsel of truth did not keep Levi and Simeon from manipulating the situation. Verse 13, because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. Do you remember what Jacob was called? the deceiver, and his sons spoke deceitfully? Great. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. So look at what's going on. So yes, the sons are behaving just like their father with deceit. But look at this last line. It says, if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Now the Hebrew word here that is used in the passage is bot. 
Bat means daughter. In the NIV, it's translated sister for clarity. If you look at the ESV or other translations that are more literal in their translating, it actually says daughter. So what is happening that we need to see is Levi and Simeon, in the absence of their father's authority and leadership, they are taking on the position of authority and leadership. They are usurping Jacob and saying, if he won't seek justice, we will. This is our daughter. And they refer to Dinah as their daughter. Their motivation started out right. And Jen Wilkin says this in her teaching. Their motivation for justice started out right, but their method is what was wrong. Have you ever experienced that? That you experience injustice or someone you love does and you start on your own to rectify the situation in your own understanding and power. And we want to fix this. We want to solve this because we see an injustice. But what happens when we do it in our own way? And then all of a sudden there is hurt and pain. And for the men of Shechem, there was pain and ultimately death when we take justice into our own hands. Verse 18, we'll keep going. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man who was the most honored of all his father's family lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. But won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle among us. All the men went out of the city gate, agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. So hey guys, if y'all just do this little thing, it's temporary then we will get all their stuff. What does he say to sweeten the deal? He goes into specifics. Their livestock, their property, their animals, wealth, advantage, power, control. The men of Shechem have been wooed into a very painful situation with a glimmer of wealth and opportunity in their eyes. They intend, though, to plot against Israel just as Israel is plotting against them. How does that go for them? Verse 25, three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Do y'all see what's happening in verse 26? Where is Dinah? She is still in Shechem. She is still with her attacker. While the men are out postulating and plotting and being deceitful, Dinah is with her attacker. We don't know how long she has been there, but y'all, five minutes would have been much too long. Can you imagine? So let's look at Levi and Simeon. Was this justice? 
It may have started out that way, but this is revenge. The plunder, the taking, the murder, this is revenge. The very thing of God that that God used to bring life to them, the covenant he made with them, back with Abraham, with the miracle birth of Isaac, with Jacob, that gift of life and the sign of that gift, circumcision, is now being used for murder. When we take the things of God and use it to manipulate and control people, God is not pleased. Jacob did it. The church has done it. We have done it. And we can do better. This is an example of taking the things of God and using them for our own benefit when God is very explicit. Let's keep going. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious. That just makes me laugh. To the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? You know, I love listening to Jen Wilkin talk about this passage. There's a word she's coined that she uses a lot, and she says, Jacob has a case of the I me, my minds. <laughs> Some of you are catching up. <laughs> the I me, my minds. The I me, my minds. Jacob has a case of, but what about me? How is this going to affect me. And yes, he had some reason to be concerned about their status in the promised land, but what about me? (laughs) It is very revealing of his character and what is important to Jacob. And inaction in in light of injustice is not the character of God. And now we find violence. We see Levi and Simeon feeling bitterness and possibly neglect. But you know, to be honest, looking at this, we shouldn't expect any other behavior from them because God has mentioned exactly how many times in this chapter? Zero. Did they have the Lord on their minds? But God is watching. He has a great seat to watch exactly what Jacob is not doing and exactly what everyone else is doing. They have set up things in their lives at this time that they have made more important than the Lord himself and put those right on the throne. But God, but God, God pursues Jacob. God has a covenant with Jacob that God is going to keep. And even though Jacob hasn't pursued God, God pursues him because God loves us and calls us as we are, yet he will never stop working to make us more like him. To make us more like him through the journey of sanctification, growing to be more like Christ. According to the Westminster Catechism, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man, all of us, after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die, under sin, die unto sin and live unto righteousness. We are made the whole person after the image of God, growing more and more in his likeness. 
Now, sanctification does not mean that we will stop sinning because we are not Jesus. What sanctification means is that there will be times in our lives that sin will, um, that, that we will sin, but the power of sin will not have, but sin will not have the power and the stronghold that it normally would have. The point is that hopefully, I look more like Christ today and sin less, put other things on the throne in his place than I did 30 years ago. That's sanctification. The thing is, I've had to go around the lake a few times. But hopefully, we are growing every day to look more like Christ. And for Jacob's journey of sanctification, God calls to Jacob, and he reminds him of that covenant he has with Jacob and the Israelite people. Verse 35, then God said to Jacob, go to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So remember Bethel? That place, God is telling Jacob, remember that place I asked you to go and you didn't go? I'm going to ask you to go right now. Yeah. And of course, Jacob remembers that. In an instant, he remembers this covenant that God made with the people. Have you, well, I have, I don't know if you have, but do you ever like get a text from someone and forget to reply? Or like somebody asks you to do a favor and you just totally forget. And the moment you see them, you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't do the thing. And that's where Jacob is right now. Jacob's like, oh my gosh, God, I didn't do the thing. You did the thing and I didn't. I'm so sorry. And he was like, we're just here for a second. We just stopped for a little. We're going, God, we're going. But Jacob is caught red-handed in the place that he is not supposed to be. God knows. Jacob knows. And so now that Jacob remembers and he is aware of the presence of God, Look how he responds. Verse 2, chapter 35. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Plural, plural foreign gods. And purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who had been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Do y'all ever watch The Office? You know, one of my favorite parts in The Office that always happens is when the camera, is when something really awkward happens and the camera goes straight to Jim and he looks right at the camera and he's like, <laughs> like, that's what's happening here. When it says, when it says, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, it's like, panda Jim, gods, what? <laughs> there were gods? Jacob knew there were gods this whole time and he didn't do anything about it. There is something interesting about the Israelites being in the promised land, chosen by God, and still worshiping other idols. This is deeply concerning. And Jacob knew that. And friends, you and I, we are also in the promised land. We have constant connection and relationship with the Lord Almighty. We have been rescued and redeemed over and over and over, yet we live like we haven't been. We live like we worship a man-made God, but we worship the creator of the universe who has all things in his hand and his grace is sufficient for everything in front of us. So do we find something ironic about having access to that God? 
and still worshiping idols. So maybe, maybe you're thinking, I don't have idols. So let me put it in another way. Maybe it's that thing that you're like, have you ever said to yourself, if blank happens, I know I won't be okay. Or if blank can just happen, everything will be okay. Have y'all ever had one of those statements? If I could just win the lottery and I could pay all my bills and catch up and start with a clean slate. Yeah? If I could just find the right outfit and say the right words in the right setting, then everyone will love me and approve of me. In his book, um, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller puts it this way. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, I'll know I have value, and I'll feel significant and secure. You see, what happens is what I was saying at the beginning, that we take good things, even great things in our lives, but then we start to hold on to them too tightly. All of a sudden, it becomes too much, too much attention or for the wrong reasons because whatever we put in these blanks is actually just the surface of what we're really longing for because under that is that longing of security, approval, love, comfort, control. And that, that is what your idol is. And when we discover those idols, when we discover those things that have pulled us off the journey of sanctification, there are three things that we need to do, and there are three things that we see Jacob do. So number one, put away the idols. Look back at what it said. What did Jacob do with these idols? He buried them. He buried them in the place where they were worshipped, in the very place that these idols were brought to life. He had a funeral for them. He put them back and removed them from their lives. And then he says, change your clothes. For us, that would be change your habits. Change what you're doing every day. Change what you're used to because what you're used to and what your habits are are enabling those idols to be put back on the throne every single day. So dismantle the idols, but change what's going on down here. Number two, remember what God has done for you. So Jacob built an altar, and when Jacob looked back at the last few years, what did he say? It says, I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who, who has been with me wherever I have gone. So all this time, Jacob did not seek the Lord, but he says he has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob knows who the Lord is and what the Lord he has done. He could clearly see that God had been with him through the best times and his worst times. So where has God been with you? Where can you look back and see where he sustained you, where he walked with you? I was in a group this morning. I sat in their small group and one woman named Ann, she goes, oh, I keep a miracle journal. I was like, what? <laughs> and she said, well, miracles happen all the time and I want to remember them. So when a miracle happens, I just write it down. And when I feel like I'm not sure if God's going to answer this, I go back and read my miracle journal and remember who he is. So maybe, maybe we keep a miracle journal. Um, number three, Jacob worshipped. 
Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. And Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. So if you haven't experienced God in a while, when is the last time you did? Maybe it was in a park. Go to that park. Maybe it was during a song. Play that song. Maybe it was over a meal. (laughs) Eat that meal. Where is the last place you saw God? Go back to that place and worship. Because the Lord desires to meet you. So ask him to come meet you, and I promise you he will. With the power of the Holy Spirit working in partnership with us and on our behalf, we take a few steps forward on this sanctification journey. To sanctify simply means to be set apart for God's purposes, becoming more like him every day. And through the work of the Holy Spirit living in us, that's exactly what happens. And as it was for Jacob, and as it is for us, it is not a straight line. It is not a sprint. It is a very curvy marathon. And we can look over and see other people are running and wonder why we can't just skip the line and run with them. There's something special God wants to reveal to you about himself. There will be up days. There will be down days. There will be days when we put all the idols back on the throne. But as soon as we see those idols, we need to take them down. So what are those idols? What do you need to bury? What do you need to remember? And how can you worship? Because, friends, God calls us and loves us as we are. Yet he will never, ever stop working to draw us close in and make us more like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence, your pursuit, your passion of us. We are unworthy. But thank you that you never stop pursuing us. And you are always waiting with open arms to hold us close. We love you and we thank you. In your son's name and by the power of the spirit, we pray, amen.